0: Welcome back to Innovation Hub, I'm Kara Miller. It's one thing to look at how the coronavirus pandemic and the shutdowns that it's caused have impacted young people. And there are numbers that you can try to estimate, like how many months kids have fallen behind in school, maybe how many more high school dropouts there will be because of what has happened. But it's another thing entirely to consider how this pandemic will affect the next generation. And I mean, the next generation.
1: There's been a big negative economic shock, and we know from a lot of past economic research as well as experience in downturns that when economic conditions are bad, people have fewer babies.
0: Melissa Carney is a professor of economics at the University of Maryland, and she's a senior fellow at the Brookings Institution. She and economist Philip Levine have co-authored a report on how the pandemic will affect fertility rates. It predicts there will be between 300,000 and 500,000 fewer births next year. That means about one in eight children that might have been born, assuming trends in American life had remained relatively stable, they will not be born.
1: That's not something that people have been thinking about as one of the potential lasting effects that this episode is going to have on on this generation and this cohort. And that's something that we think, you know, is, is likely to happen.
0: Carney says reams and decades of data show exactly the same thing. When economic anxiety and instability go up, people just stop having babies.
1: And if you look across those studies, you see that a one percentage point increase in unemployment rate generally leads to something on the order of a 1% reduction in births. That was true in the Great Recession about a dozen years
0: ago. And if you look at the increase in unemployment from February to May of this year, you can start to see the contours of what will happen in labor and delivery wards in 2021.
1: The... 7 to 10 percentage point increase in the unemployment rate over 2020 is likely to lead to a 7 to 10 percent drop in births just from the recession effects alone. So from the recession effects, that leads us to predict that there's going to be a decline of about 266,000 to maybe 380,000 births next year. But on top of the economic impact, there's probably going to be a further decline that comes from the direct result of the public health crisis and the uncertainty and anxiety that that creates. We look back at the Spanish flu to see what happened in that context. And so doing that leads us to increase our estimated decline in births and and suggest that we might see a drop of perhaps 300,000 to 500,000 births in the U.S. next year.
0: But what if this isn't like the Great Recession or almost any economic shock that we've seen? After all, people were told, stay home during the pandemic. Spend more time with your partners. Well, that's a pretty unusual situation. Maybe that could lead to more babies than expected. Kind of how like nine months after a blizzard when people have free time on their hands with nothing to do. Melissa Carney says she wouldn't count on it.
1: Those stories about a likely spike nine months from now because everybody's stuck at home with their romantic partner and, you know, what a great time to do the things that lead to babies, that's that's partly what motivated us to bother writing this report. I have a couple reactions. First, that is this sort of urban legend that lives on that these blizzards and blackouts when people are stuck at home for a weekend, you see a spike in births nine months later, It's a really cute story, but in fact, people who have looked at the data with rigorous statistical methods actually don't see that in most cases. Uh, So that's a little bit of an urban myth, but more to the point, we just view this episode as very different. This was not just a temporary blackout where everyone's home for the weekend, right? People are definitely socially distancing and at home more than they sort of normally would be. But the much larger story about what's happening is the tremendous increase in economic security. I mean, we've had 20 million fewer jobs in May as compared to February. Large increases in unemployment. This is a huge economic hit to mm-hmm. families. And sort of, you know, both the way we think about fertility decisions at econ- as economists and the empirical studies that have been done Makes it very clear that even if there's some small, you know, group of people who increase their or, or move up their timing of fertility in response to this, in the aggregate, the overwhelming effect is going to be a large decrease.
0: So basically, people are like, "Well, I'm just I, I want to have, let's say, two kids. I only have one, but." things are really bad right now. I don't know if I'm going to lose my job or I have lost my job or my partner's lost their job or whatever. So maybe we can try again in like a year or two and either they run out of time and like it doesn't end up happening or, you know, or the person never feels
1: unstable enough financial footing to really try again. That's exactly right. That's exactly right. And your example, if someone has one kid but might want to, actually there is some evidence that The word we use as economists is elasticity, but it it means the responsiveness of, let's say, second or third births to economic conditions is probably a bit larger than first births. I see. So if people know they
0: want kids, they really know they want to go for that first one. But the third kid, if things are really tight financially, they can be like, let's wait. Let's just wait. Right, right.
1: And And, you know, the way you've described it makes it seem very... Reasonable that a couple would have that conversation. You know, as economists, when we model fertility or marriage, we do so in this decision making framework. Like people have preferences and then they make choices that are dependent on those preferences given budget constraints, given how expensive things are, how expensive Mm -hmm. it is, you know, to raise a kid in your area and what your income is. And sometimes we, as economists, get pushback from people who say, "Like, oh come on, having a kid or getting married isn't an economic decision." Right, um, right, right. And and so for I was people thinking who aren't the used- same
0: thing. Like, well, I mean, kids are. I mean, there's like romance, and you know, like you fall in love with somebody and you get married, and 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 I mean. the way you describe it is it is so I I never realized that having kids was so related to the economy like it's amazing (laughs) how correlated it is
1: right and and so of course you know economists generally are not known for our sentimentality but like we realize that (laughs) you know it's not that we think everyone actually sits down and solves this problem and says this is the exact number of kids I want and this is the timing I want and of course not just like Love happens or doesn't, but biology happens or doesn't. And so, of course, it's not a perfect science, but the empirical relationship, as you said, is quite strong. And, and really, it's not all that surprising, right? There might be some people for whom childbearing is unintentional and it happens or it doesn't. But again, we're talking about averages and aggregates and right. sort of, you know, on that... Right. Probably shouldn't surprise us that when it comes to making what are some of the most important decisions in someone's life, they're going to take account of economic conditions and their economic security and income and ability to afford childbearing, et cetera.
0: Got it, you know you talked about how the basis of this projection that there might be something like three hundred to five hundred thousand fewer births, right uh next year, is that right? Yep. Okay. That that projection, um, you know, you look back to the recession, the Great Recession of 2008, 2009, um, but also you look back at the 1918 flu pandemic. And I, I wonder, um, can you compare those things? And I I particularly wonder about it in the in the context of birth control, like, in 1918, I, I don't really, I mean, I certainly know the birth control pill was not around. So I wonder, in, in, the, very, in the last pandemic that, that could be equated to this one, a really big one that was really disruptive, did people have the same kind of control over their fertility they do now?
1: Well, that is what I thought was astounding. So I think the comparison to the Spanish flu is really quite fascinating for the reasons you point out, which is the Spanish flu was a public health crisis in ways similar and in other ways dissimilar to the one we're experiencing today. But an obvious contrast is that in 1918, women did not have access to the kind of contraception we have now. And in fact, we did look back at this. The kind of contraception that was available was very rudimentary. Um, And so it's nothing like the ability to protect pregnancy that women or couples have um, available today. And yet there was a very large decline in births following the two spikes of the Spanish flu. So Mm -hmm. we look at the data month by month, and what you see is that when there's large increases in mortality rates, owing to the influenza and pneumonia, so the main causes of death attributed to the Spanish flu. Nine months later, you see sizable decreases in birth rates on the order of about 12.5%. So, wow. if you think so people were really that,
0: responding.
1: Right, people really responded, and it's and it would have been harder to respond, as you pointed out, as it is right. today. Now, one reason why the impact of the Spanish flu on birth rates might have been Sort of larger back then than today, despite the contraceptive difference, is because it was hitting, it was more likely to be hitting people of childbearing age than we're seeing with the COVID 19 virus. And so, again, our predictions of the effect of COVID 19 are less about biological fertility hits and more about decision making. But we do sort of increase our estimated expectations of, of the decrease in births because we realize that there are reasons to think that the decline in births is going to be larger than just what we would expect from an economic recession, mm-hmm. right? There is anxiety. There are illnesses. We know that affects just people's like fecundity, ability to get pregnant. And so maybe that's also part of what was happening in the Spanish flu context. And so that's why we increase our estimates um, up to three hundred to 500,000 births, which is 3% higher than we would predict from the recessionary effects alone. Huh. You're
0: listening to Innovation Hub. I'm speaking with Melissa Carney. She is an economist at the University of Maryland, and she's the co-author of a report for Brookings about the so-called COVID baby bust. We've actually done segments here um, with economists who've looked at uh, the fact that we're waiting till later in life to have kids in the US. Um, we're kind of delaying that decision because honestly, and a lot of it is people want to be on more solid economic footing and it takes it takes longer. And that includes women who didn't necessarily used to have jobs before they had children. I, I wonder how you like couple those two things together. One, that we're waiting longer. And the other that, wow, there's this huge disruptive event in the middle of somebody who's 35 thinking I'm ready to have a child.
1: Right. So for people who were sort of nearing the end of their childbearing years who have delayed and now are hit by this crisis, many of them will will unfortunately age out. And Mm -hmm. so for them, the the sort of transitory temporary shock will lead to a permanent reduction in the number of kids they ever have right and so it will it will affect the total completed fertility of different women differently really depending on where they are in their childbearing years hmm. so because some of the delay will necessarily mean that women are older and it will be less likely that they'll have a child some of that will be permanent and okay. some of it even for younger people you know i'm worried that the income loss will be permanent. And so they will have fewer children. There's a, an interesting study um, by Jason Lindo, an economist, and he looks at couples among whom the husband experiences a job loss at some point during their marriage. And what he sees is that for, you know, it's a panel data, so he can follow these couples over time. And for couples in which the husband loses his job, that leads to a lower earnings over their lifetime which leads to a reduction in the number of children that couple ever has compared to similar couples who don't experience uh, a male job loss.
0: So finally, I know you've looked at a lot of different economic consequences of the pandemic, not just this one, many, you know, I know you've thought about, like, how do we put together a plan to sort of get things, you know, figure out, how to deal with this economically. To you is this story, which has not been talked about that much, the idea that in the future people may not have children, as many children, that there's going to be a huge, I mean, maybe close to half a million fewer births next year in the U.S. Is that a story that's more important than we might think it is or than it sort of gets credit for?
1: I think... It's part of the story, but there are so many ways that individuals and families are going to suffer from this um, experience in this context that I I wouldn't dare try to say that this is, you know, belongs at the top of the list. And I wouldn't know how to go about ranking um, sort of consequences, Mm -hmm. but the you know, the severe economic insecurity that so many households are facing, the heartbreaking increase in in rates of food insecurity among households, Mm -hmm. especially among households with children, that has long lasting consequences for people's development, their their health, um, their ability to learn. I mean, the devastation that I think is going to come from the loss of learning of children who have been out of school and might very well be out of school in the fall. That needs to be considered as a major consequence. I think this demographic, demographic consequence is an important one. It was one that um, I think was maybe less obvious to people. Yeah. And so that's, that's why we report this. Not, not necessarily to elevate this as the single most pressing consequence, but just one of many.
0: Do you feel like we're not paying enough attention to what's happening to the American family? There's a lot of talk about jobs versus, you know, hospitalizations and cases. What's your sense of, you know, the importance of the American family in this?
1: So I think when we talk about when we talk about jobs, you know, some of that conversation is is coming from people who think about the productivity of the U.S., for me, my inclination, my research, the way I've approached these problems, when I hear about job losses, I think about all the families who are losing their jobs <laughs> and, and just how many families can so quickly fall in, into, into poverty um, and experience all the negative consequences that come along with that. I do have the sense that children need to be talked about more in this it, you know, so much is being talked about. How do we get restaurants back open? Uh, How do we get people back to work? Well, you can't really get a lot of people back to work if their kids are home without school or daycare. So even if your first priority is getting people back to work as a practical matter, we need to be spending a lot more attention on thinking about getting kids back to school. But the other reason why I think the sort of burden that children are bearing needs to be getting much more attention is because those impacts are going to be very long lasting, right? The, the loss in learning for some kids, you know, the increase in malnourishment and, you know, in, in some horrible cases, even abuse that's going unreported because these kids are now home, all of that needs to be up front and center in thinking about how do we get ourselves back out. And, and opening schools, in my mind, is like priority number one for all of those reasons, right? Both for the kids and because it's a necessary input to getting people back to work. Right.
0: Melissa Carney is a professor of economics at the University of Maryland. She's also a non-resident senior fellow at the Brookings Institution. She co-authored a new report about the impact of COVID-19 on fertility rates. We'll have it at our website. Melissa, thank you so much. Thank you. As I noted, that brickings report is gonna be on our website as well as more about how fertility and economics intersect, innovationhub.org. Thanks to the people who helped put together this show. Senior producer Elizabeth Ross, producer Mark Solinger, associate producer Sarah Leeson, and engineer David Goodman. We also had production help from Teresa Lawler. From PRX and WGBH Radio, I'm Kara Miller, and this is Innovation Hub.